Well, if you have a Bible, we are going through Genesis, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the book of beginnings, turn to chapter 17. We look at our message, new names for everyone. In this passage of scripture, the Lord reveals a new name that he's going to declare to Abraham. He gives Abram a new name. He gives Sarai a new name and a child that is on the way, one year away, a new name. And all of this is this new beginning that all the work that God has been doing in Abram and Sarai's life for 25 years. God appeared to Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees 25 years, well, 24, I guess to be exact, before at the age of 75. He said, get out of your country, get away from your family and go to a land that I'm going to show you and I'm gonna bless you and make you a great nation and your name's gonna be great and you are going to bless, be a blessing to all the world through the good news of Jesus that came through his lineage. Have you ever wished you had a different name? Some of you have that one of those handles that you really uh, <laughs> don't care for. My grandpa Brown, his, uh, his name was Horace Orville Brown. And my father asked him one time, hey, dad, why, why did uh, grandpa Willie name you Horace Orville? He said, well, it's plain and simple, isn't it? He hated my guts. <laughs> I don't know what your name and the background, but in the Bible, the names have significance. And oftentimes a name is changed as an indication of a work of the spirit in your life. Your nature changes. Jacob, after wrestling all night with the angel of the Lord, he's begging, begging for a blessing. And the Lord changes his name from hill catcher, which is basically synonymous with supplanter or deceiver to Israel the one who wrestled with God, the wrestler. That's what Israel means, the wrestler. He's wrestled with God and he's wrestled with man and the Lord said, and you have prevailed in those wrestling matches. When the Lord met Peter, Peter's name was Simon. He meets Simon and he says, you are Peter, which means rock. I'm gonna call you Rocky from now on. Go on strong now. You're going to be transformed from this Simon to a rock. In this passage, the Lord's going to change some names. Oftentimes when I was growing up, I wish I had a different name because Rick names rhymes with a lot of bad things on a playground. And my parents uh, just kind of offhandedly gave me this name because my folks got married young and they had four kids by the time my dad was 25 years old. Cramming in four kids at age 25, they did not want this fourth one. My dad actually tried to have a vasectomy. Well, he had a vasectomy, but it just didn't work because here I am. And uh, two months later, I showed up and, uh, and my dad was really torqued off. And after he finally calmed down, my dad has a uh, fiery temper. He came in and told my mom, whose name's Danya, said, Danya, well, I guess he'll be the president of the United States or he'll be a preacher. And so he, uh, he, na he nailed that appropriately. But they didn't have a name for me. So they brought me home from the hospital, no name. And they walk in the door with this bundle, uh, new, the fourth uh, child in a family that was young and growing fast. And my Uncle Jack at the time had basically left home and was living on my parents' couch. And they said, Jack, what should we name this boy? 
And my Uncle Jack said, well, you know, I think we should name him Ricky Shea because my favorite cartoon is Ricky Shea Rabbit. Bing, bing, bing. And so they named me Ricky Shea. So most people have significant names. I'm just a Looney Tune moving through life, wishing I had a different name. But the people in this story really have names of significance. Check it out as we pick it up. And we have God's new name for Abram to discover. In verse 1, it says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, he said, Abram, now, the last time we finished chapter 16, last Saturday night, And now it's been 13 years because it tells us it's given a chronology so we can track with what God is doing in Abram's life. At 86, he had the child Ishmael. And so now he's 99, so it's been 13 years. And Ishmael created tremendous tension because Sarai could not have children, so she gave Hagar, her maid, to be a wife to Abram. And then when she got pregnant, she got all uh, cocky and arrogant and despised Sarai. You know the story. She runs away because Sarah treats her so harshly, and she runs out in the wilderness. But the Lord hears her, and he sees her, and the Lord promises her that he'll do a work in the child's life that she is pregnant with. And the Lord even gives him a new name, which was Ishmael, which means he hears You see, God heard her as she poured out her heart of anguish, caught in the middle between a husband and a wife and being this love triangle that was trying to help God out. God wasn't getting it done fast enough for them and they thought they needed to help him out. Now, that might have been a tense 13 years. It's silent, we don't know. But now he's 99. And he shows up when uh, Abram's 99 years old, says the Lord appeared to Abram. Throughout Abram's life, God has these epic moments where he just appears to him, he communicates to him in supernatural ways, but he talks very clearly to him. He understands exactly what God's saying. And he introduces himself now, he said, I am almighty God, which is El Shaddai. Now he has not used this name to describe himself thus far in the book of Genesis. This is self-revelation. You see, he's given this new name to Abram to know he starts the conversation this way because he wants him to know he is the all-sufficient one. He is the all-powerful one. He is God Almighty. He's the one that can accomplish everything that he's saying in Abram's life and everything that Abram needs in his life, God can accomplish. You see, everything that you see in front of you is the obstacles, the difficulties, the struggles, your own weakness, your own incapacity to accomplish. God says, it's all right. I'm El Shaddai for you. Every single one of us that know the Lord, he is El Shaddai, the one that can provide for you. What are you lacking tonight? What are you longing for? What's the deepest places in your heart and your mind that you you don't even have the courage to speak out loud, but it aches like some deep desire in your bones? The Lord says, I'm El Shaddai. I can minister to that. I can work in that. I can either fulfill your heart's desire or I can communicate with you that that's not my best for you because he's able. And he tells him since this is who I am, 
Almighty God, El Shaddai. He says, now I want you to walk before me and be blameless. King James, be perfect. Nobody's perfect. When it's, the scriptures talk about perfection. It's just talking about maturity. But here specifically, it's like, in this relationship between you and I, Abram, I am the all-sufficient one, and you're walking with me, and I want you to walk with me in such a way that my life begins to absorb into your life, and there's this blamelessness that you begin to move through life loving God and loving the people around you so that there's, there's not this glaring offensiveness towards God or towards others. To be blameless simply means you're going through life without some glaring uh, sin that's dominating your life that people can point out and say, look at them, they're the drunk, or look at them, they're the drug addict, look at them, they're the liar, look at them, they're the gossip, look at them, they're the greedy uh, individual, whatever it is, when people can look, and it's as if people move through life with a handle sticking off of them that people can grab a hold of and say, aha, this is the great charge of your life, this, this glaring sin in your life. But you know, as you start walking with God, God just begins to transform you. The Bible says we with unveiled faces as we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being changed from glory to glory to glory. God is changing you and I all along the journey. I'm not who I was five years ago. I'm not who I was 10 years ago. Praise God I was not who I was almost 40 years ago. In five months, it'll be 40 years since the Lord saved uh, this messed up lost kid. I'm not that same guy anymore. And neither are you if you're very long in your journey with the Lord. And he says, I will make a covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. I'm going to bless your socks off, your descendants, Abram. And the only response you can have to this incredible, all-powerful, all-sufficient, all-knowing God that reveals himself to him is it says, Abram fell on his face. When I met God at the age of 19, I did the same thing. When God spoke to me, I fell on my face in my living room. The reverence that comes with meeting God, the reverence that his holiness, his presence makes known to you and your wretchedness, your fallenness, your, your sinfulness, you realize what about this picture is wrong <laughs> that a holy God wants to talk to somebody like me. It happens all the way through the scriptures. When Peter, the Lord, tells him to catch the big catch of fish off the other side of the boat and then Peter falls in the boat on his knees and says, God, Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. When glory is revealed from God, man's response is brokenness and humility that we see who we are in our smallness. But Abram's gonna get a new name. God just revealed to him a new name for Abram that he is the one, basically, if you wanna put El Shaddai or God Almighty and you were to put a sentence next to it, nothing's too hard for him. What do you think's too hard for God? Nothing's too hard for him. There's nothing that you will ever face that is too hard for God, too big for God, too challenging for God. And it's so contrast to the false gods, isn't it? The scriptures declare false gods. People go out and they chop down a tree and with part of it, they throw it in the fireplace to keep warm and the other part, they carve it in and they form it and they give it a hands and eyes and ears, and a, but it can't do anything. It can't hear anything. It can't speak anything. It's just a block of wood. 
but Almighty God, nothing is too hard for him. But Abram's going to have a name change in verse 4. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, which means exalted father, but he has no kids. But your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you. Kings shall come from you. It goes from exalted father, though he doesn't have children, to now father of multitudes. He's going to have tons of kids. The scripture said like the, the sand on the sea and the, the stars in the heavens. But what does he insert to give the new name? What is the letter that he inserts? He's going to do the same thing to Sarai and it's significant. He puts in the H sound, the fifth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which is the sound of breath. He breathes, he brings his spirit. It's this picture that in, the, in your name, if you want to have a name change, you want God to breathe upon your life, breathe upon your name, bring life into you, who you are. It's like the breath of God comes in. It says that God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, and then he breathed into him life. The Spirit of God is what empowers us to transform our lives from a person that just operates on two planes. Basically, the physical plane, I have a physical body, and I have soulish awareness. I'm no different than an animal until the Spirit of God comes into me, except in the sense that I have this, an image bearer, I'm created in God's image. But An animal basically moves through life by instinct, but you and I have reason. But it's not until God's spirit comes into my life that I begin to submit my my body, soul, and spirit all to him and to be useful. So Abram gets a new name. But now there's a covenant's new emphasis. And he's mentioned it before, but every time he reinstitutes it or he reaffirms it, we see a a freshness to it in verse seven. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I'm going to give this covenant, you and I, Abraham, now his name's Abraham, Abraham, you and I now have this new relationship or this new covenant, and I'm going to give it to your children and their children and the great-grandchildren and all the way through, even up to today, 4,000 years later. I'm not only going to have this covenant with you when we're going to have the sign or the uh, outward mark of that covenant in a moment, but I'm going to have it with your children, but it's an everlasting covenant, and it's an everlasting covenant that I promise you the land. Now, the land has been given to the children of Israel back in chapter 15, an official uh, contract or covenant was made between Abraham and God, and now he emphasizes it again. What is the battle going on over in the Middle East right now? What is this battle that people are concerned that we're going to, it's going to escalate? And if it does escalate, I mean, if Iran gets involved, then that means Russia gets involved. And it's already a proxy war where uh, military things are coming through Iran into Hamas's hands. And all these, all these players are behind the scenes already involved. And the progressive left, because have you discovered this about 
uh, people, the progressive left, or we would call, we no longer call them liberals because there's a traditional liberal that that doesn't really fit. They're basically the socialist communist idea, uh, ideology that they all hate God, they all hate Israel, they all hate marriage, they all hate gender identification as male and female. They hate that uh, Christians, they hate the Bible, they hate God's word. They hate all these things. Anti-Semitism is now, I was reading this week because of what's going on over there, there were a group of Jewish students in the university, New York New, uh, University in New York, they were barricaded in the library at the university because there was a mob going to kill them because they were Jews. That happened last week in America. The Holocaust is coming back. Why? Because people that hate God hate the Jewish people. It's satanic. All through the scriptures, we have all these people that are trying to destroy the Jews, right? Pharaoh comes along, tells the Egyptian wives, hey, kill those male children. They said, no, they feared God, so they didn't do that. Haman comes along in the story of Esther, and he goes, let's annihilate all of the Jews. Hitler comes along, let's annihilate all the Jews. Now we see some Christians actually jumping on the bandwagon and being among the woke church, the woke church around the world that is also against Israel in this conflict. And it's bizarre to me that they don't know passages like this. The Lord said, I'm making an everlasting covenant with you, Abraham, and all your descendants. Not only a covenant, but I'm going to the land, the land of Israel. That's what all the Muslims want to drive Israel into the sea. They believe they're occupiers, that they're trying, they're uh, colonizers, that they don't belong there. If anybody belongs there, if the God of heaven and earth gives you the land, it's a done deal. It's your land. So, these things, I love going through God's word because it's just like, well, here's the headline news. Let's look at the Bible. <laughs> right? It goes hand in hand with what's going on. And that was 4,000 years ago, and this promise is still good. Now, there's going to be a sign that is a little bit startling for us a sign, a, a spiritual sign in this relationship with God and all the Jewish people. And it's the sign, the covenant's new sign is circumcision. It says in verse nine, and God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child is in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, this is a strange covenant, isn't it? To cut off the foreskin of the male sex organ. And at eight days. So every male at the eight days has this done. And 
in the Jewish culture, they also get their name on that eighth day. So for eight days, they go nameless, the boys, and then they get their name on the day of the circumcision. Now, circumcision was around in ancient times, and it had different connotations. But this circumcision, the Lord elevates and says, now this is going to be a special covenant of circumcision between me and my people. And it's this picture of cutting away. It has a spiritual picture or significance to cut away the flesh and begin to live after the spirit. It's on the eighth day. You know, the Lord created everything in six days and on the seventh day he rested. The number eight in the New Testament uh, and in the scriptures is new beginnings. It's like a new beginning. Jesus rose on what? Not Not the seventh day. That's Sabbath. That's sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, because that's their days go unlike us from morning to night. They go from evening to morning. And so Sunday is the eighth day. It's the new beginning that Jesus rose from the dead on the Lord's day. Why does the church meet on Sundays? Because it's the eighth day. It's the new beginning. It's the new covenant. So in this sense, here's this new experience. There's going to be cutting away of the flesh And since I am giving this covenant to you and your seed, which is a physical reproduction, right? It is actually coming through your sex organ as it goes. And there's nothing more intimate. There is a sexual purity for God's people. In the covenant of marriage, you shall not commit adultery. And they were not to commit fornication, which means sex basically... uh, premarital sex or whatever it might be. The same things are instituted in the New Testament, but there's nothing like putting a mark right on the old uh, piece of equipment that declares this is a special covenant for God. Now, sadly for the Jewish people, it slowly became this, this boast, this arrogance, like these uncircumcised, even David, like this uncircumcised Philistine. It's the way, the way they described the Gentile world that they believed was basically created just to fuel the fires of hell. Kind of created an arrogance. Well, but on the other hand, for the world, they began to hate the Jew for circumcision or any other thing. Even up to this point, because it is not a requirement for a Christian to be circumcised or a Christian family to circumcise their children, though because of the Judeo-Christian effect on America, many children... Uh, many men in the room would be circumcised because of the basically lingering effects of the Judeo-Christian ethic that has taken place. We had a doctor come to our church years ago, and uh, he had started visiting the church, nice guy, general practitioner. And um, when I had a, a, a son, I was going to have him circumcised, not on the eighth day, doing anything Jewish, for me, it was a cultural thing uh, that I'm not really going to get into, but <laughs> uh, had nothing to do with spirituality. And the doctor tried to convince me, he goes, hey, you know, I just got back from being on the border down in Mexico and, you know, all the people down there, we don't do circumcisions on any of the boys. And I didn't really feel the need that I had to explain myself to this doctor. And, but I went ahead with it and he stopped coming to the church because he, he thought somehow I was going back underneath the law and these different things. Well, you know, you don't always have to explain yourself in and, and, and detail in these things. But the reality is, is that we don't have to be circumcised as uh, believers in Jesus. There's a freedom, in, and, and that's good news, right, fellas? We're not going to have you raise your hand, those who are not circumcised. 
You want to say, we're going to have a circumcision party after service. Anybody want to join up? You go, well, boy, good thing you happened on the eighth day. Well, we're going to see in a moment that Abraham, Abraham does it and he's 99 years old. <laughs> I would think that'd be a rough go at 99 years old, getting, getting circumcised. I was teaching this passage many years ago, probably 30 years ago in church, and it was a Sunday night, and uh, a, a, a drunk homeless guy had come off the, uh, off the street. It was kind of cold out, came into the church, and he was sitting in the back. And I got to this part, circumcision. He goes, circumcision, huh? And he got up and he ran out. I think he thought we were going to have a service right there. Start cutting things off. <clears throat> but this is a specific covenant that God wanted to mark in the most intimate place upon a man's body. Now, all the Jews that followed knew that it was not simply about cutting skin off. They knew it was about a spiritual heart for God. Moses says this in Deuteronomy 16, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. He looked at a stubborn person and says, you know what, you need a circumcision, but of the heart. You need to cut that, that stubbornness out of your heart. Some of us here, God's been talking to us about some things and we've just been rebellious and stubborn. The Lord would tell you, you know what? You need to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. You need to surrender that area of your life and stop being stubborn and rebellious to the Lord. Moses said again in Deuteronomy 36, verse six, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What does he want to do in the process of circumcision? Create in you as you cut away the flesh, the life that's been dominated by sin and to awaken and bring the fresh life of a love for God and a love for people around you. Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 4.4, circumcise yourself to the Lord and take away the foreskin of your heart, you men of Judah. So once again, cut away this rebelliousness, this, this resistance, this hardness of heart, this callous skin, so to speak, that is in your heart. Now in the New Testament, there's a spiritual work of circumcision that's not physical. As Philippians 3.3 3 says, we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. What is our spiritual circumcision for all of us, male, female, is that we worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Colossians 2 says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Here he says, putting off circumcision symbolizes you repenting and putting off those uh, sins that are dominating your life. To put off and then to put on love and to put on the work of God's grace in your life. So Romans 2.28 says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. You and I have had a spiritual circumcision without hands, without sharp objects upon the heart. The conversion has happened. You see this moms and dads, don't you, with your teenagers? You got your teenagers, and if you've raised them in the Lord, there's a phenomenon, church kid phenomenon. And if you're unfamiliar with it, stick around and watch it. 
kids grow up in the Lord, usually they fall in love with Jesus from the time they're in grade school. They're going to vacation Bible school. They love going to Sunday school. They're loving Jesus. And then something happens about between 11 and 15 where they hit the brakes and it's almost like they hit a wall. And they used to just be just in love with Jesus. Moms and dads say, oh, our little preacher. I think it's going to be a little, oh, I think she's going to be a missionary. They're so excited. And then all of a sudden, kids hit this rough patch about 11 to 15 years old. What is that spot? Now they come into church. They're too cool for school. Come in, come in. Wear the ball cap, fold their arms. Don't want to be, they huff and puff. You try to wake them up on Sunday morning. I don't want to go. It's a big fight just to get them out the door. Get them over here. And you think, fine, okay. You get them in. They have this issue. And what they're really wrestling with, a kid that goes through this journey of the church kid journey, is moms and dads that get saved later in life. How many of you got saved later in life? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you grew up in the church? Okay, about half and half. So those who get saved from the world, we've, we've seen all the yuck. We're coming to Jesus like, help us, Jesus! Right, the church is a refuge. Like, I can't believe it, I sing with people. We hug each other, we laugh together, and our head doesn't hurt the next morning. We're not hungover. It's awesome. But the church kids grow up, they grow up in an atmosphere of goodness. And in their flesh and in their struggle and what's out there in the world and mom and dad's trying to, moms and dads try to prevent their children from repeating their mistakes by cramming all their, that's what I did, don't what I do. And they get sick of that. You know what? Kids have to have their own journey. And in that journey, they hit a spot, 11, 12, 13, where they go, wait. They're mentally developing. And they think to themselves, now, wait a second, do I love Jesus because mom and dad love Jesus or because I've decided to love Jesus? Which is it? So that one year, two years, three years, four years, some people are still on their 30-year journey of trying to figure that out, right? The prodigal comes back at 50. And what they're trying to s- struggle with is like, this is the journey of them, everything that you've invested in them, mom and dad, you did a good job, way to go. You've given them everything they need to know about Jesus. They know enough to be saved. They know that this is the word of God. They know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. You've done a good job. Oh, I'm not a perfect parent. Join the club. Is there any perfect parents in the room? No. No perfect parents. All your children and my children are going to need therapy. (laughs) There's no perfect parents. But get this. You did your best to share Jesus with them. Now they have to figure out what they want to do with the Jesus you shared with them. So they start wrestling with that. They start pushing back. My kids went through this own journey. It's almost like one Sunday morning we showed up in church and my son's there and he's this uh, kid that we've just raised, just loving, and my daughter also. And then one day, all of a sudden, it's just like the skeptic showed up. Don't know about all this stuff. And I try to tell parents, don't freak out, because the more you freak out, the more it weirds them out. You just be confident in your own faith. You be confident. You don't have to cram it down their throat. They start saying, hey, how do we know the Bible's true? How do we know this is true? 
How do we know that it's not, you know, totally mistranslated? How, how can we trust the Bible? How, how do you know that Jesus is... And they start, like, doing all these questions. And parents that are not ready for this moment, they just, oh, no! They just freak out. My little Johnny's going to hell! I don't know what to do! So, Calm down. All they're doing is trying to discover their own faith. And you can help them along the way. You can help them with information. The most helpful thing you can do is be open to any conversation they want to bring up. Well, what what if it's not true, Dad? I had all these conversations. I'm just telling you. I've, I've raised two kids. I have grandchildren. I know what this looks like. I know what it feels like. And in that journey that you're you're going through, that whole journey, you're you just need to commit them to the Lord. You be confident in your own faith. But it always came back around to this. I want you guys to know. And I want to have you share with you the package that the conversation you need to have with them consistently. When they push on it and how do you know and you, maybe you're believing a lie. And this, you know what? Let me tell you this. This is what my life was like before I knew Jesus. This is what my life is like now in Jesus. You owe it to me as your parent if you find something better than Jesus out there, please come tell me. Because I looked really hard and I never found it. So if you find something better than Jesus, you know, you owe your pop, you owe your old man the privilege of coming and telling me you found something better than Jesus. But they're out there looking for something better than Jesus. And they're not convinced Jesus is the one that's going to give them abundant life. And it's kind of scary, mom and dad, isn't it? It's a little bit scary. But I want you to know, if you will just trust God by faith, you just trust God. You just trust God with them. I tell, especially moms, moms, bless your heart. It's very difficult for you to let go. Guys are like, well, Lord's just going to kick the snot out of them. They'll come around one another or another. And mom's like, no, not my baby. I, this is my prayer always for my, any kids or any prodigals. God, whatever it takes, bring them to the end of themselves. Bring them to that place in their life where there's absolutely no answer but you. There's no answer but looking up and saying, Jesus, save me. Jesus, help me. And God, be merciful. Be gentle with them. They're my kid, Lord. Be gentle, (laughs) right? Well, I just hope they don't do something that's, you know, you can't reverse. It's just like so bad. Well, trust the Lord. My son would tell me, my son went through a season where he had tried to shock me, shock me. Well, Dad, what if I just want to bail on this whole Jesus thing? Just go be a leader of a drug cartel in South America. Make money, get women, do drugs, kill people. You know, what, what would you do then? I'm, well, son, I'd be praying for you. Well, what if I killed somebody and I went to prison? Well, son, I'd come visit you and give you care packages if they let me. Son, there, there's nothing that you could ever do that would separate me from your love. I love you. And God loves you. And you can run as hard as you want from God. God still loves you. And I still love you. Abraham has a new relationship with a God that is El Shaddai. He's the Almighty One. And let me ask you again. So we touch on the tender subject of your teenage kids. Is anything too hard for God? No. You say, you don't know my 16-year-old. Well, I don't need to. I don't need to. 
God knows them. And he knows them very well. Start praying God brings all of these other Christians into their life. Christians that impress them. Christians that, because they stop listening to mom and dad. They're trying to get all of their information out here. And so I just start praying for them. Lord, just start bringing all these Christians into their life that's telling them the same thing. But they're a younger face or they're a cuter face or they're whatever they are. Just bring these people and the Lord will do it. Sarai gets a new name in verse 15. Then God said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. Once again, the H, the breath, the work of the spirit. Sarai's name before many believe meant contentious. If it's true and Sarai was a contentious wife, she, we know in chapter 16 she was contentious because of the issue with Hagar. And now Sarah, the breath comes in. The breath comes in and now she's princess. Now, would you rather be married to Mrs. Contentious and Combative or Mrs. Royal Princess? Well, the princess has just arrived because the Spirit of God can change all of us. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and shall, she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Abraham and Sarah now are going, in through their bodies, through one son, are going to be the grandparents of millions, and there's going to be royalty, there's going to be kings and queens that come from their life. And then there's Abraham's new joy, because when he hears this, now think about it, he gets a new, he, he's 99, he gets a new name, Abraham, Sarai gets a new name, Sarah gets a new name, and then he tells them both, hey, you're going to have a boy. <laughs> Look, there's a new joy because he can't help but laughing in verse 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old and shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear, or 80, uh, 90 years old, bear a child? Now they're both 99 and 89. They're exactly 10 years apart. So when the baby comes, he'll be 100 and she'll be 90. Can you imagine? Any, any of you want, I'm 58. Any of you want to start over? No. My, my wife's with our grandkids right now. We have a five-year-old granddaughter and a two-year-old grandson. And uh, we love hanging out with them. But when we hang out with them for a week, we're exhausted. It takes us a week to recover. Because when they're with us, they, you know, we, we do these slumber parties. I, uh, my grandson sleeps with me. I'm Bapo, And so he always wakes up about four in the morning He's, he has this, ha, ah, he's going to cry. And I said, hey, it's all right. And he's like, bubble in the dark. I'm like, it's cool. And then he just snuggles up. He has this thing that he puts a chokehold on me and he's, he hugs me all night long. But at 58, I prom- I'm, I'm a grandparent. I can go home. I can go home. I don't have to start all, I can't imagine starting at 100, right? So <laughs> this, makes, this makes Abraham laugh. He just thinks, this is, this is crazy, a hundred-year-old and a ninety-year-old having a baby. Now we have the new name of the child that's going to be on the way in verse 18. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham and Ishmael are so tight. They are like father, son, 13-year-old. They're, they're glued together at the hip. Abraham loves Ishmael so much. And he goes, oh, that Ishmael could live before you. And Ishmael could be basically my heir for the future of all the big promises you just made. And God said, no. In verse 19, God said, no. 
Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, look at how gracious God is to their big mistake when they tried to help God out. For Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation." But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. Abraham is basically interceding for Ishmael, and God said, no, Ishmael's not my plan. He, he, th- you, and, you and Sarah and Hagar, you guys made a mess of that. that that's not the heir. Isaac, wh- whose name means, you're to name him laughter, that's what his name means. He laughed. So every time they say Isaac's name, it's going to remind them of this joy. Now, why has God, I've mentioned that several times in our study, why has God waited till Abraham's 100 years old and Sarah's 90 years old? We would not know unless Paul the Apostle told us in Romans chapter 4. Why? He said that so that Abraham and Sarah's bodies were as good as dead reproductively so that God could do a miracle. That's why. why. He gave him a promise he's going to have a son at uh, 75, so he waits 25 years. Why did he wait that 25 years? Because they could still naturally reproduce. And God said, no, no, no. Remember, I'm El Shaddai. I'm the almighty God. Nothing's too hard for me. I'm going to take two old codgers, two old dead people, right? And they're walking dead people, reproductively speaking. And I'm going to give you a supernatural child. Wow. Have you noticed all the way through scripture, God loves to do this supernatural thing so that you know it's him and not you. Mary, you know, she's this 15-year-old, whatever she is, she's a teenager. And the angel of the Lord says, hey, you're going to have a child. She's like, yeah, but I haven't been with a guy. I don't know a lot, but I know that that's a prerequisite. How's that to be? And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. It'll be a supernatural thing. All the way through scripture, because if you can do it on your own, will you really glorify God the way that you would if he just did something supernatural? Oftentimes in our life, this story of Abraham and God waiting for them to be just as good as dead is the same thing that's happening in your life tonight. Some of you have struggled with something for years. You've struggled with some promise that hasn't been fulfilled. You've been struggling with getting victory over some sin. You've been struggling with, you've been struggling with that. You've been struggling through all of these years. And it's not until you finally come to the end of yourself and you're totally helpless. You're just like, that's that's it. I can't do it. God said, okay, I've been waiting for that. Some people are just more stubborn than others. God's been waiting for you to get to the end of yourself so that he could do a supernatural work and show you that nothing is too hard for him. But as long as you think that you can do it in your own strength, in your own energy, in your own effort, God's just letting you wear yourself out. He's just letting you wear yourself out. And that's exactly what you're doing. And so often when we totally forget, I mean, totally just, just that's it. I, God, I can't do a thing. And I've seen that with parents with their kids going back to that source. like, I don't know what to do with this kid, Lord. I, I commend them to you. That's what my grandmother did with my father. My father was just this hard nut to crack. 
And my grandmother just said, Jesus, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm over it. I can't do it anymore. I just, I just, I commend, I, I give Larry, my, that's my dad's name. I give Larry to you. I put him on the altar. Lord, I'm going to, I'm going to stop worrying. I'm going to stop fretting. I'm going to stop being, you know, up at night because I'm worried. My dad was in his thirties. She said, I just give up. And God began to go after my dad in such aggression. Once my mom, grandmother finally gave up, my dad called and said, Mom, I know what you're doing to me. <laughs> Knock it off. And she said, no. No, sir. She, had, she was an oaky, an Irish oaky. She's like, no, sir. I done given you to Jesus and put you on the altar, and I'm not taking you back. He's coming after you. <laughs> and he was saved shortly after that. Oh, why wait so long? Because God's doing a work in my grandmother, and he's going to do a work in my father. Why wait so long? Because God's doing a work in you. You don't even know it. You don't even know. All you're kicking and screaming and internal turmoil that you've been going through, coming to that place where you just go, ah, there's no place like total surrender for total peace. I just give it to you. I can't do it. I just can't. God, you can do it. God puts in motion this preference for all of the covenant people coming through Isaac and not Ishmael. What is the battle in the war over there right now? All the descendants of Ishmael fighting against Isaac, even to this day, after 4,000 years. They put something into motion that is still taking place. Well, we've got to get to the obedience as we wrap it up tonight. Abraham's new obedience because he has a new command to follow in verse 23. So Abraham took Ishmael, his Son, all who are born in his house and all who are bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day. He got the command and he did it that day. As God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael. And all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So Abraham does it himself. Realize this that, you know, they, got a, uh, they have no uh, scalpels or anything that sharp. It's uh, sharp stones and sharp knives and a brutal world for the men and the household of that little uh, group of people. But that's the picture that we have of the circumcised life. The circumcised life in a spiritual sense, is I finally take, I, I, God reveals sin in my life. And he does it throughout my life. You know, David, the psalmist said, I, I pray, Lord, search me, O God, and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You want to pray in your heart and say, God, you know, search my heart. What are some things that you would want to circumcise and cut away that I might give that space and that strength and that energy that I'm wasting on some area of sin in my life and, and, and have your spirit infuse it and fill it and breathe into me new life, fresh life to change me from glory to glory to live the circumcised life? Because you see, one of the things that's holding many of us back is there's these, there's these sins in our life that we know, we know exist God's been talking to us about it, but we just let it continue on and linger on and we don't deal with it. God puts his finger on it. He says, hey, I want you to circumcise that. I want you to cut that away by my grace. I want you to confess that to me. How do we cut away? We just 
Basically, confession is saying the same thing that God says about that sin. And once that we go through our life and God searched our heart and we begin to confess what we experience is this new life, this fresh life, this new joy in our life because these things are reducing the quality of our Christian life. If a Christian can be saved and living a defeated life, but he's still going to go to heaven, how, how is he affected? He's affected by the quality of life. Meaning that if the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, it, and you could have it this deep, if you were in tune and step with the Lord, when sin begins to dominate our life, there's not very much love. There's not very much joy. There's not very much peace. So when we allow sin, it sucks the real work that the Spirit wants to do in our life out of us so that we cannot experience the fullness of joy, the fullness of love, the fullness of peace that God has for us because sin diminishes it. Does that make sense? So you have to confess and live the circumcised life and, and repent and cut those things away so that that fresh life, that new life can flow in. For each of us, as we, I mentioned at the beginning, everybody gets a new name. Did you know that to those who overcome in Revelation 2.17, in the church of Pergamum, Jesus promised to the Christians, he said, everybody that overcomes this world and me, I'm going to give you a new name. You're going to get a new name. He said, I'm going to give you a white stone. And on that white stone, which is the stone of acceptance, I've accepted you, you've believed in my son. On that white stone, I'm going to put a new name. And only you and I are going to know that cool new name that I gave you. That's pretty cool. I can't wait. And I hope it's not another Looney Tune name for me. I think it's going to be awesome. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love and your grace and your goodness. And I pray that you would strengthen us and refresh us in your spirit with your life right now. Lord, there are those who, as we sit here, Lord, I just pray that corporately we just pray, Lord, would you search our hearts? Would you know our thoughts? Would you see if there be any wicked way in us and lead us in the way of everlasting that we might confess our sins and forsake our sins, that you might pour your abundant life, the quality of life into us to fill us with that incredible love, joy, and peace that you have for each one of us. Lord, I pray for your people, that they would, you would just cause your face to shine upon them, that you'd give them your peace, that you would lead them, lead them, Lord, into a beautiful, deeper walk with you as we walk with you this week. In Jesus' name, amen.